Max Facts. I'm one of your hosts, Maria McBarry, and today we have two amazing guest speakers, Drs. Damien Finley and Rishad Sheikh. So today, uh, Drs. Uh, Finley and Sheikh are going to walk me through a mock oral board. I know a lot of you guys who are listening will be taking the oral board this year, and uh, we're going to see an example of that. The exam is made out of three sections, and the examiners will go through four 12-minute cases in each of those sections. How was you guys' experience with oral board? So as we were kind of talking about briefly off-air, I was in fellowship at the time of my preparation for the exam. A lot of what I was studying was being reinforced you know, with uh, my being in fellowship. I had the, the benefit also of having you know, Dr. Sheikh, who training me at the time during fellowship to also kind of quiz me on things and also kind of help me focus on the salient topics that I needed to focus on when studying like for the boards. But for the most part, what I did was I started in September. I was going through the Nashville notes and making my own notes along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, you know, did a few board review courses. And I would say that I had everything as it relates to the study format that I wanted to achieve. I had gone through everything in its entirety uh, by the end of December. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do that so that in, in January and the early part of February, I could focus more on just reviewing and also um, strategies and, and going to board review courses. What about mm-hmm. you, Dr. Sheikh? You know, something that my chairman uh, instilled on us was that, you know, being boarded was not a, wasn't even a one or two year process. Getting boarded was a process that started, you know, day one in, in residency. So, Virtually day one, I went through every single series of the knowledge updates. And when I graduated there, I think they were up to volume four. So I essentially, when my during my residency, I went through all those, took notes on all that stuff because I, I kind of felt like that was probably the one source that had the most salient information uh, boiled down uh, in in kind of a cohesive manner. Yes, there are some other great textbooks out there, um, but I kind of focused on the knowledge updates. So I use those. And over that course of four or five years, you know, took notes on all that stuff. By the time it actually came to executing for the, you know, oral exam, you know, not to frighten people who may have not taken the same approach I did, you know, as Damien just said, you know, having all the salient didactic stuff in front of you in an organized manner that you uh, can follow, uh, I think is very important. And then the last piece of it is being able to articulate it and understanding that this is a little bit of a chess mess. This is a cat and mouse game with you and the examiner. And when I say that, I don't mean that the examiners are necessarily out to get you. They're really not. That was not my experience. And that hasn't been my experience with most of the colleagues that I've spoken to. Big part of the preparation is trying to be able to predict some of the pitfalls. And you you can do that with a lot of repetition with, with your colleagues, with your classmates, with whoever you're, you're oral study partners. I can't overemphasize how important that is. Um, I had a study partner and we did it over you know, Zoom or whatever the equivalent was. I took my orals after I'd completed fellowship. So same experience as Damien. I had just finished a full year and now I was presently in the moment doing a lot of the cases that will come up on board. So that really helped kind of reinforce things as well. Beautiful, beautiful. So... Suffice to say that after years of experience, you guys are now having your own board review course and your course 
is going to be in St. Louis. I'm going to let you guys talk about the details. It's one of the eight courses that Amos has published on its website. Although I want to emphasize that A-Bombs or Amos do not endorse or sponsor any of these um, courses. There. So tell us about this course. When is it? So uh, the course is going to be October 21st through the 23rd. It's going to be held at the Ritz-Carlton uh, in St. Louis. And the way it's actually structured is that uh, throughout the day, there's going to be various lectures. And then there's also going to be small groups where we get together, discuss topics, and also take the, the attendees to the course through some mock cases, if you will. After we take them through the mock cases, we will also, you know, there'll be time for review and just kind of discussing some potential strategies on how they may want to approach the examination. As you know, that this course is kind of, you know, birthed out of the oral uh, board of re review book that uh, a lot of us through a great deal of <laughs> effort and time, you know, put together trying to make a hybrid, if you will, of the USMLE first aid book and the Golgen pathology book, where we just kind of had salient points uh, for people to kind of focus on and to also provide a few cases in the book that we felt kind of mimicked some of the experiences that we had when we kind of went through taking the oral certifying exam. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be great. I mean, this is our first year, but we've got um, a lot of people that have signed up. I think that we have um, great staff and people that are passionate about teaching that will be there to kind of help uh, guide these people who are seeking board certification. Today, let's uh, put me on the hot seat. Oof. Okay. <laughs> I promise you, we'll be good. And just the, the one thing I want you to remember, Miriam, is this, right? It's good to know where you are. And the one thing he, he emphasized to me is there's what you need to know what's nice to know and what's nuts to know, right? And so I felt my experience and I think many other people would, would uh, verbalize this same point is that the examiners want you to pass the exam, right? And so they're gonna start out, you know, very basic with the things that they feel that you need to know, um, some things that are nice to know, and then just based on how you perform some things that are nuts to know. Right. They just want to make sure at the end of the day that you have the basic knowledge to practice evidence based oral and maxillofacial surgery and to be safe. So this exercise, um, it will be rapid, but still just take your time and just answer the question that you are being asked. So this is a 65 year old female right, with a history of liver cirrhosis, hypertension, a recent COVID-19 infection where she was hospitalized for pneumonia. She only required non-ventilatory uh, oxygen via nasal cannula. She was discharged a week ago. You're seeing her because of the fact that she needs teeth numbers four and five out. She's interested in sedation, takes amlodipine. She recently received Paxlovid in the hospital. She has no known drug allergies. What is hypertension? Hypertension is one of the end disease of atherosclerosis. Okay. Do you know with essential hypertension, you know, and having elevated blood pressure without an identifiable cause, do you know what potential defects may be associated with that? 
No. Okay. So do you, can you name me some causes of secondary hypertension? Se causes of secondary hypertension could be um, sleep apnea. You could have an adrenal gland tumor mm -hmm. uh, that will cause uh, secondary hypertension. Okay. Um, what is the workup for hypertension if you're trying to assess end organ damage in a patient with newly diagnosed hypertension? So you want to look at the kidney. Okay. Uh, and obviously you want to look at the heart to see if there's any heart failure. Okay. Do you know what Alice Chiron is? No. Okay. What is liver cirrhosis? Liver cirrhosis is uh, fibrosis of liver. Okay. Can you name some things that cause it? Causes of liver cirrhosis could uh, be hepatitis. You could have liver cirrhosis from alcoholism. Okay. What? Okay, why are patients with end-stage liver disease coagulopathic? Our liver is the is a place that we fabricate or we, we make a lot of coagulation factors. Okay, any other reason? Mm -hmm. Okay, why are end-stage liver disease patients more prone to infection? One of the side effects of cirrhosis is uh, ascites, and sometimes that leads to a bacterial infection in your third space. Okay. What is COVID-19? COVID-19 is a respiratory disease. What is COVID-19 caused by? Uh, SARS-CoV-2. Okay. How is it spread? It's through respiratory particle and also fecal oral. It could also be spread. Okay. Any other way it can be spread? Not that I know. Okay. What are some common presenting symptoms of a patient with new onset COVID-19? They could have loss of smell, loss of taste, and uh, fatigue. Okay. What's the pathophysiology of the virus? How does the virus actually infect a viable host? It enters uh, through our, uh, our respiratory tract. It goes to the alveoli, and in the alveoli, it... Um, it attaches, surface protein attaches to our type 2 alveoli cell that we have, and then it enters, uh, it enters the cell and replicates there and then spreads. Okay. Oftentimes when we, we talk about patients with, you know, COVID-19, uh, they get very sick. We hear of the cytokine storm. What is the cytokine storm and what can it lead to? A cytokine storm is a overreaction of our immune system. On, if a patient has COVID-19 pneumonia and they have a CT scan of their chest, what is the hallmark sign that you can see on the CT of a patient with COVID-19 pneumonia? So you would see fluid collection uh, around the lungs. Okay. What is Paxlovid that this patient was on? It's an antiviral medication. Okay. Do you know how it works? No. Do you know whether or not it's a it's a, a single drug or a combination of two drugs? Combination. Okay. What is the R not of it as it relates to COVID nineteen? I have no idea. Okay. You decide to sedate the patient in your office. The patient is the patient's sedation is titrated to effect with versed pentanol and propofol. After administration of local anesthesia, the patient becomes tachymic. Her breathing is labored. Her saturation has dropped to 
auscultation reveals bilateral wheezing with crackles. Mm -hmm. What is going on? The clinical presentation looks like a development of pulmonary edema, uh, which could be from the fact that uh, part of my differential diagnosis in this case, in the setting of recent COVID-19, is the is that she's not uh, completely, uh, her disease is not completely resolved. Perfect. All done. So okay. we'll, we'll go back through. So, you know, um, I, I know I asked you a lot of questions and um, I think, you know, you did a, a good job of getting through stuff. Certain, you know, basic definitions. Yes, you will have to tighten up on a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think there are some things where initially in the beginning, and it could have just been, you know, from you being a little anxious doing this, which is normal. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you kind of struggled and you got into it. I even tried to give you a hint um, as we progressed. But I asked, what what is hypertension? And you went on to say that it was the result of, um, of the hardening of, of arteries, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is, you know, arteriosclerosis is the hardening of arteries. And can hypertension, you know, occur as a result of that? Yes, but a simple definition of, of hypertension would have just been elevated arterial blood pressure that's oh it. that's so much right? simpler right exactly <laughs> that's describing so, it i was like right. oh pathophysiology <laughs> so what is and that's what i was saying to you, you know you just have to kind of answer the question that you are asked and give a very basic answer okay uh, it comes down to it and don't necessarily offer up too much more because those might end up being other questions that an examiner you know, may ask you. So mm -hmm. then I got a little tricky and I asked you, are there, so is it associated with certain defects? So even though, yes, essential hypertension, there's no identifiable cause. There's certain defects that um, they have seen in patients with essential, essential hypertension that may contribute to it. Like, so for example, example uh, patients, their, their blood vessels are not as um, responsive to like vasodilators like nitric oxide. They have an increase in their sympathetic tone at baseline. They also have problems with uh, sodium chloride handling. And so they're constantly reabsorbing that. And if you reabsorb sodium chloride, you have more of an expanded intravascular volume. And so you're going to be more you know, hypertensive. They also have higher levels of, of A2. Um, I ask about causes of secondary hypertension. You got it right. Adrenal tumor. But other things that can do it, renal artery stenosis, um, intrinsic uh, kidney disease, coarctation of the aorta, uh, hyperthyroidism. I asked about the workup for end organ damage. You're right. You want to look at the, um, the heart. And usually what they end up doing is at baseline and EKG to look for evidence of like any type of arrhythmias or to look for evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy. They often will do a ophthalmology evaluation to kind of look to see if there's any evidence of retinopathy. And they will look at urine studies to see if there's any proteinuria or if your glomerular filtration rate has been compromised as a result of having damage to the kidney from the longstanding hypertension. I asked you a tricky one. I said, what is aliskyrin? That's a drug a lot of people don't know about. There were some issues with it, but it was a direct renin inhibitor, and that's how it worked as an anti- um, hypertensive. I asked about cirrhosis. You got that. It is so irreversible fibrotic changes in the liver as a result of like chronic hepatic inflammation. Um, you got the causes right. Hepatitis can cause it. Longstanding alcoholism, other things that can cause it. Um, autoimmune hepatitis, primary biliary cirrhosis, 
um, fatty liver disease, longstanding. Um, I asked why the patients are coagulopathic. You're right. The liver does make um, clotting factors, one of the major manufacturers of, of clotting factors. But also what ends up happening is if you end up having incre increased portal hypertension, you can have platelet sequestration and that leads to, you know, the patient to become thrombocytopenic. So they tend to kind of bleed excessively for two reasons, lack of, you know, the clotting factors necessary to do their part in the coagulation cascade. And then obviously if you don't have platelets around, you can't even, you know, start the process to get platelet aggregation, you know, with the resultant clot, you know, forming on top of that. Uh, I asked why are end-stage liver disease more immunocompromised? The answer there is that they have, problems with their what's called reticuloendothelial system. So within the liver, there is the liver actually houses its own monocyte phagocytic system. And if you end up having damage to the liver, you don't have those, you know, monocytes, macrophages to go in there and kind of eat stuff up. And uh, I can't remember what your answer was. I said respiratory disease. Respiratory disease. So yeah, I would say it's definitely, it's a, I would say a viral infection caused by um, SARS-CoV-2 virus, right? I mm -hmm. would go there mm -hmm. because... Um, because it could affect yes. so many other symptoms. Well, yeah, well, no, it's, and, and, and it ultimately, I, I think for most people, you know, most people might have some respiratory involvement. But the other thing is, you're right, you do have some people that are asymptomatic and may just have a loss of taste or whatnot. So, but, you know, I don't think you would necessarily get, you know, ding that hard, you know, for, for saying anything like that. But definitely a virus caused by the uh, infectious, infectious disease caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, I think is, is fair game. I asked about the cytokine storm, right? It's like an exuberant um, cytokine release. And I knew you were thinking about what you can try to, what it can lead to, but essentially you just end up having like multi-organ failure because of the fact that with all those cytokines being liberated. Um, I asked about Paxlovid, which is the drug now they're they're given, you know, pretty early on in patients that have symptomatic COVID. It is a it is a combination drug. It's a, the last thing I asked you about was about the R not. This was a hard level ten nuts to know question. The R not is just the essentially the infectivity quotient of the COVID-19 virus. As far as the complication, I think you did a good job. You got it. That's kind of how it went. It goes pretty fast. And, you know, now you know you've-, you've, you've Pretty fast and pretty taste. long. Yeah, I know, right? It's fast, <laughs> but it's long. I will take over the screen, I guess. You know, this is a little bit of a game, you know? But if you, in your mind, you set the fact that everything, if you, if you base everything on a, on a one to 10 or zero to 10 scale, mm -hmm. um, if, if you think that you've gotten to level, you know, seven, you know, at least eight level question, you know, that's when I had a moment, uh, an epiphany moment during the boards that I realized that once I got to that level of question, I, a lot of my stress just kind of disappeared. I was like, all right, now they're just going to ask me some off the wall stuff. And I'm just going to sit here and smile and say, I don't know. And if I know it, I'll answer it. But if I don't know it, I know I'm doing fine. I know I've passed this thing at this point. If subjectively, I feel like this is, this is what I think a level eight question should be. Mm -hmm. And I, and I got that, then you can have some peace of mind, you know, 
There is, there is, there is no honor in, you know, getting a hundred percent because nobody ultimately knows what you're going to get anyways. Mm -hmm. You know, you get a piece of paper that says you passed or you didn't pass. So um, I think that that's, if the the mental part of it for yourself as the individual, um, you know, if you can set that in the back of your brain somewhere, Mm you know, that should give you some peace of mind. Um, So that that was that was a big that was a big part for me. But like I said, just, you know, getting comfortable saying I don't know and and not letting that completely derail you, uh, you know, is is a big part of it. So um, let's go through a trauma question uh, um, scenario. All right. So 27 year old male status post MVC, unrestrained, positive LOC. Um, you get contacted by the trauma team. ATLS has been completed. Patient is hemodynamically stable. C-spine is clear. And I'm going to show you a series of 3D reconstructions. I'll show you all three of them, and then we'll come back and you can request to see any one of them that you would like. So taking a look at these reconstructions, can you categorize this individual's fracture patterns? The forward three fractures, as well as the forward one, in addition to left side mandible fracture. Don't note, I don't appreciate anything on the right mandible. So in your part of uh, evaluating this patient, how would you evaluate for relative afferent pupillary defect? When I shine light into like the left eye, if the right eye also gets constricted and uh, vice versa. And if the pupil of the left also gets constricted itself. Uh, what is a hyphema? Hyphema is um, accumulation of blood in your anterior chamber of your uh, globe. And how do you treat it? Treatment is indicated based on the level of severity. If, if it covers your whole, whole iris and it prevents you seeing, then it might require intervention, but mostly it resolves on its own. So as part of your examination, um, you notice that there's uh, copious clear drainage uh, draining from the nair. What could this be? Given his um, extensive maxillofacial trauma, uh, CSF leak will definitely be in my differential diagnosis. So in the acute setting, you're trying to you're trying to ascertain whether this patient has a CSF leak. What other methods could you test to determine whether this is indeed CSF draining from the patient's nair? I would try to use the ring um, test, which I would take the drainage. I put it in a pizza on a on a sheet, white sheet, and um, I'll let for it to dry. And uh, if there is a ring outside, uh, that would mean that it's a CSF leak. So where's the blood in the halo test? I believe it will be in the center. Uh, do you know what the typical glucose concentration is for CSF, if that's how you want to test this? Yes. The, so it goes it goes that your blood has the highest glucose level, then CSF, and your nose should not have any glucose level. So how are you going to stage this patient's repair? What technique or staging methods are you going to use? For him, I like to do a bottom-to-top approach. In that case, I'll first start by securing a airway using tracheostomy and then placing him in a maxillomandibular fixation. I will go ahead and fixate the ramus fracture. Bilateral subcondylar fractures with loss of posterior vertical dimension. Mm -hmm. Um, What are the indications for open treatment to the subcondylar fracture? 
decrease of two millimeter vertical height. And if your uh, condylar structure, condyle head and neck are more than 30 degree uh, rotated medially, as will be my indications to open the surgery. You say that this patient had an NOE fracture. Can you give me the classification of this fracture pattern? Um, what is the patient's uh, bow test? It's negative. Class three. So if the patient had a frontal sinus fracture, what are the indications for performing an obliteration versus a cranialization? I will look at intactness of posterior wall fracture. So you complete your orbital floor repair, and in the PACU, you note the patient has ptosis of the upper lid, dilation of the operated pupil, ophthalmoplegia, and V1 numbness on the ipsilateral side. What could this be, and how would you treat it? That sounds like a Horner syndrome to me. I think you get a sense, yes, as sitting there as the examined... Uh, as the one being examined, sometimes time seems like it's going by slowly, but it's, it's a relatively quick period of time. 12 minutes is all you've got to get across to the examiners what you know about trauma. And, and just think about how big you know, of, a, of a topic and a, a subject that trauma is. Yes, definitely. Thank you, Drs. Finley and Sheikh, for putting me through the hot seat and this exercise. I found it very helpful, and I'm hoping that our listeners found this exercise helpful as well. Until next time, goodbye!